This is Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, season two, episode 17. On this episode, I kick up the dust with North Las Vegas police officer Nick Quintana. I'm Anthony Weaver and the host of this podcast, the Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, which aims to promote law enforcement with biblical truth in order to help people better understand a profession that is often misunderstood or even hated. One of the main ways I do that is by giving officers a seat at my podcast table to talk about who they are, why they answered the call to be a police officer, and what it's really like to do the job. On this episode, I have a great conversation with North Las Vegas police officer, Nick Quintana. What you're going to hear from him is an incredible story about a trauma-filled childhood, his journey to get hired as a police officer, his faith, and the homicide call that caused him and his wife to take in five children. That's right. If you recognize his name, it's because he was highlighted in a Cue the Dip segment and a winner of Cue the Dip earlier this year. After my conversation with Nick, I will have a brand new Cue the Dip standout involving an officer who fought through a gunshot wound putting shots on target, and stopping a suspect. I'll end with some closing thoughts from my talk with Nick and explore how Jesus can save even someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. My guest for this episode is Nick Quintana. Nick is a North Las Vegas police officer. He also serves in the Army National Guard, where he is an explosive ordnance disposal specialist. If his name sounds familiar to you, it's because he has been on this podcast as a kicking up the dust in pursuit standout or as we like to say, cue the dip, uh, on one of our past episodes where he was recognized for responding to a homicide scene that left five kids without parents and caused him and his wife to take all five kids uh, into their home. Nick is here on on his own time and off-duty. He is not representing his department, and his statements and comments on this podcast are his own. Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure, and uh, it's quite a humbling experience. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so you're you're a super busy guy. Um, you know, you have wife, kids. You're working full time. You have military responsibilities. And I just realized, um, uh, just in the little bit of time I've gotten to know you before we've done this podcast, that you're in school as well. What are you What are you in school for? What are you studying? Yeah. So currently, I'm working towards a, an associate's in criminal justice, but. Uh, you know, I definitely want to get my undergrad in uh, social work, and um, if you know, the Lord wills, then hopefully pursue a master's, and then eventually a doctorate in, in psychology. So, wow! You know, just baby wow. steps. Yeah, baby steps starting now, and then of course, uh, as time goes on, you know, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. We'll see my life takes me. You know? Okay. And how do you? I don't even know how you balance all that. Do you work like a steady schedule, like the same schedule, or are you on a rotating schedule? No, yeah, I, I work a, a steady schedule. I currently work day shifts right now, thank God. Um, you know, typical 40-hour week, 10-hour um, uh, uh, work days. And then, you know, that's not including any mandated or scheduled overtime that's that's in the midst of all of that. So uh, really, you know, it's, it's I got to thank my wife, man. My wife kind of keeps me on my game um, as far as doing my homework and, and studying and whatnot, you know, because, you know, I'm, Pretty sure you're well aware, probably some of your listeners, um, you know, it's, some things can just really just become overbearing and just kind of want to take a nap every once in a while, you know? <laughs> right, right, for sure. Yeah. 
So the the department you work for, uh, as I as I stated in the intro, is North Las Vegas. Can you just talk a little bit about the size of that department? How many sworn officers you have? Uh, how big the area is that you cover, and and kind of like what the level of crime is in that jurisdiction? Yeah. So uh, so North Las Vegas, um, it's a smaller city. It's kind of like a sub city to a larger metropolitan area. Um, it's kind of like how some of the cities work and in LA, if you will, you know, you have those smaller, smaller cities like Anaheim and things like that. Um, <clears throat> anyways, but the population is a right around, if not more, maybe two or 300,000. Uh, for us, my department specifically, we have about 200, maybe 300 sworn, sworn officers, somewhere in between that. Um, where I currently patrol is all of our Northwest area command. Um, we have two area commands. That's uh, South area command and Northwest area command. We're getting ready to build another command, um, or um, I would say, uh, yeah, another command center, if you will. Uh, I can't, I don't know why it's slipping my mind. Um, oh, substations, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, okay. so we're getting ready to build another substation, uh, be the Northeast Area Command. Um, but for the most part, where I patrol, actually where I do actually patrol is all of the Northwest Area Command, um, which is a pretty pretty large area. Um, if I were to drive from one, the furthest, uh, yeah, for this north or west area, uh, down to our um, eastern border, it would probably be about 20 or 30 minutes, 20, 30 oh, minutes, wow. drive, depending on traffic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty now, big. Is this, yeah. it's, so it's generally an urban area then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it, well, it, it more towards the northeast area, um, it starts becoming a little bit rural. Um, you know, that's because you're starting to head towards Utah at that point. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's pretty urban. Okay. And right now, obviously, you're on patrol uh, and you're assigned to, to day work. Have you worked any other assignments in the department, um, you know, since becoming an officer there or you've been on patrol since you started? Yeah. So um, for the most part, yes, I, I've been on patrol. Actually, I have been on patrol since I began. Um, I was working. I was a reserve SWAT officer for some time. For just uh, over just over a year, and actually, um, when I took in the kids, I was uh, I was basically well. I, I had to leave uh, this the um, SWAT team. I was basically kind of like encouraged to to leave so I can focus on my family, um, which I you know I do appreciate that uh, because as you know now, uh, my schedule is pretty busy, and then of course, add on five kids to that you know, that range from, you know, six to, to 17 years old, there's, your hands are full. Um, you know, right. especially, you know, when they come from a traumatic background, uh, yeah, there's counseling that's involved and, and all these other appointments and whatnot. So I do appreciate that. And, you know, um, looking back, I, it was definitely a blessing, but for the most part, again, yeah, I, I've been on patrol. Um, I have worked, uh, graveyard when I first started, Probably like every other, you know, uh, right. new sworn officer, you know, work graveyard. Um, and then last year I was working swing shift. And then, of course, this year I am now back um, to day shift, um, which I probably okay. won't change <laughs> anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. Yeah. I Early in my career, I, I loved night work. I loved working, you know, graveyard shift, uh, you yeah. know, but the older I've gotten, the the less sleep I can get. I don't, I don't understand it, but oh, I yeah. work. I work all night and I don't, I, I mean, I have, you know, obviously I have a family too, uh, but even, yeah. even during school and they're, they're gone at school, it just seems like I can't get more than like four hours between shifts. It's just brutal. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah I was I'm, working I'm, graveyard. It was the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I worked I worked uh, night work for quite a while, and then uh, probably about a year after we had our daughter, I finally made the switch to day work, and I've kind of been like a day work guy ever since. It yeah. just makes the most sense for for me and my family. So. So when you were yeah. on when you when you were on SWAT, you said you were reserve SWAT officer. Is there different Correct. rankings within the SWAT team there in North Las Vegas? Can you explain that? Yeah, I kind of like the way we do things um, as far as the SWAT team goes um, yeah, for our department. You know, you have you can test for what's called a reserve SWAT officer position. Now you can test for a full time position um, right off the bat, but the likelihood of you actually getting um, an, an officer actually getting picked up to the full time position uh, without having um, been a reserve SWAT officer prior to, uh, it's, it's pretty slim, right? Um, you know, d- as a reserve SWAT officer, it's, you know, you, you, it's a rotational thing, you know, every other month you are assigned to the SWAT team, you leave patrol, you go to the SWAT compound, um, and you engage in normal SWAT functions. Um, and it, again, I, I do like that because it provides whoever is interested and the SWAT team provides them exposure to see if that's something that they really want to do. Um, you know, it provides them exposure as far as like the demands and requirements to be SWAT and remain on a full-time SWAT team. And then of course it, it gives the full-time, uh, full-time guys that opportunity to get to know you and to see if you would be, or an officer would be um, a good fit for the team, you know, cause if there is no cohesion there, um, then, really just provides a lot of tension, which really gets in the way of the overall fluidity of the, of the SWAT dynamic and, and so forth. So yeah, that's kind of how we do it in, in North Las Vegas um, or on North town. I should say that's what we say here uh, in North yeah. town. And so I don't know if, uh, if Metro or Henderson or some of the other departments uh, in the Valley or, or whatever do, do the same thing, but I know for us, yeah. I, I do like that. And it's, it's pretty good, pretty good way they, they design that. Yeah, no, it does seem like a pretty good design for a full-time SWAT team here in my area, we have a countywide SWAT team and it's not full time. Uh, So those guys, it's like extra duty. Uh, They they get on the team uh, and they're expected to go to practices, uh, whether they're on or off duty. And then they're that, you know, obviously any call outs that they have, they go they go on. But, yeah, it seems like a pretty squared away way to do it. If you if you have a full time team, Um, did you you have did you have some of that background? uh to that kind of like in the military that got you interested in in getting on SWAT yeah so um you know so when i was in the military i was active duty infantry for just sort of 3 years i was stationed at fort hood um fort hood texas and then of course uh you know we we talked about or we touched up on the um, eod side of the house um you know infantry definitely uh sparked my interest um you know towards SWAT uh, but what I originally wanted to do uh, was our department's armor division, um, you know, which is equivalent to to the bomb squad, if you will. But the way Vegas kind of works out, it, it's all politics. It's the bomb squad is, is ran through um, the Clark County Fire Department, uh, so it's not really, yeah, it's not through any um, law enforcement agency out here, as it, you know, much like it is for pretty much the rest of the country. Um, but yeah, I originally wanted to do the, the bomb squad, but, uh, now of course, yeah, I went into SWAT and the military definitely had, um, an influence on that because of the infantry background that I had. Okay. Now, did you do any combat tours when you were in the military? 
Uh, no, uh, I did not. Okay. I was I it was sent overseas. Um, it was in the Sinai Peninsula for better part of a nine months to almost a year. Um, about yeah, about nine months. And uh, you know, as as I was getting ready to get out of the uh, military, um, an infant or uh, an Afghanistan deployment was coming down the pipe, but. By that time, I'd already entered my window and already started the process to transition out of the uh, the military, at least active duty, that is. Okay. Um, but yeah, my time will come. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Nick, can you just talk a little bit about your background, like how you grew up, where you grew up, uh, what your home life uh, was like? Just, just yeah, who you are. Oh, well, now we're getting, <laughs> in, getting into the weeds. <laughs> um, you know, it's... The way I grew up, uh, well, th- there were definitely moments of, uh, how do I put it, you know, of, of, like joy. But for the most part, it was, you know, I'd, if I'm being straightforward with you, it's, it was pretty pretty rough, if you will. Um, you know, I know that in some of the interviews that you probably watched before, um, you know, I, I didn't have um, a, f- a father, uh, if you well, yeah, I didn't have my father. He was killed by a family member of mine. That's something we can talk about um, later on. Um, you know, I, I grew up with uh, seven, seven, eight siblings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Lost count. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, my mother, I, I had a single mother. I call her a single mother. She was dating a guy for about 13 years, but he was addicted to meth. Uh, so he wasn't really much help as far as uh, providing uh, food on the table and, and really just being supportive. A partner to her um so i just i call her a single mother but my mother uh, had her hands full um she was working a lot she was a breadwinner of the family um she and i did not have a good relationship growing up it was a, a very uh, volatile relationship uh, kind of butt, butt heads a lot actually uh you know she but she had a big heart you know she took care of a lot of people um there were constantly people coming in and out of the house um primarily because of her her ex-boyfriend um, would invite other other tweakers, uh, you know, other meth users in the house and so forth. Um, you know, we moved a lot, uh, moved pretty much once a year, if not two or three times a year. Um, you know, it, it just, it was a very unstable environment. Uh, you know, I, I love my mom now. Right now we're actually, we're working on a, a relationship as of this year. She, she's clean. She ended up, um, she ended up relapsing and, and going back into drugs, but now she's clean. She's she's doing better for her. She's actually saved now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Growing up, it was it was pretty uh, pretty wild, man. You know, uh, saw a lot. Um, yeah, it was it's crazy. Now, um, was that in the Las Vegas area or somewhere else where you grew up? Oh man, no that that was it was all over Las Vegas and then uh, okay. all over Southern California. Well, I, I say all over. It was like in the La Puente. Uh, San Bernardino, um, uh, West Covina, uh, Victorville area, all those uh, Southern California um, cities. Yeah, it's, it's something like that. Yeah, it, actually it was yeah. that. So we, we moved, we bounced back and forth, man. Did you have any like adult in your life that was kind of a mentor or that you gravitated to that was, uh, you know, solid and, and helped you? Or were, did, were you got kind of just on your own? And in this environment, without any, uh, you know, good oversight by an adult. No, uh, yeah, no, no. There was, there really was no mentor. Um, maybe my grandfather, um, but I, you know, I, I saw him every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, no, there, there was no, no manly figure 
to to kind of look up to or really just yeah really just look up to there was there's really no one there you know my mom right. like i said she uh she worked hard she spent a lot of her time working and when she came home she went straight to, to her room there, there was just myself and my other siblings and we just kind of did what we wanted really okay now were you one of the older ones middle younger where did you fall in in all those siblings I'm actually a twin. Uh, okay. I, uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm right in the middle. Um, and my twin, she's about 20 minutes older than me. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. So Good old how middle you, child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean that. I mean, you you know, you only talk for a couple minutes there, but there's so much. Uh, you know, it, it's always interesting to me. You talk to you talk with people who have had really uh, terrible experiences or or. Uh, just uh, really difficult things in their life. And it, it gets broken down into a couple sentences, but in that is so much, you know, pain and suffering and, and growth and yeah. maturity and, and all that. Oh, yeah. How did you, like, what do you think was the, the primary um, thing? You know, you, you, you said your mom is now saved. Uh, you're also, yeah. you know, a brother in Christ and um, so what, what was it in those young years, uh, when, when you were super young that kind of got you to a place where you are now, where you didn't go the other, the other direction? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, as, as cheesy as it sounds, man, um, or cliche, if you will, because, you know, we're saved. Uh, I'd like to say that, that really God has had, has had his hand over me and still does, um, uh, you know, ever since I was a child, man, you know, right. um, there were definitely moments of, of just pure sorrow that I experienced as a child, you know, from, from being sexually violated, um, as a young boy to, you know, to my grandfather attempting to kill himself to the abuse, the abuse, uh, physically and, and emotionally and all that, you know, I would like to say, man, really, I, I just give it, give glory to God in that respect. Right. But of course I, I didn't have. I didn't have this perspective initially, right? right? I, I grew up around a bunch of uh, gang members too. Um, a lot of my family members, um, or a good good amount, were, were gang members, um, and so you know I could very easily I could have very easily gone the other way, much like you just mentioned a few moments ago. Um, I could have definitely gone the other way um, because back you know back then when I was a child, referring to people that I looked up to, at least who were who were a positive role model. I didn't really have that, but I did have a bunch of other role models, right? Who, right. who knew the streets and how to survive in the streets. And to me, that was like, Oh, that, I guess that's what it, what it, what it means to be a man. You know what I mean? Um, right. But you know, one day, I guess there was a point where I just realized, and I want to say it was probably in my early teens, maybe 14 or, you know, 13 or 14 years old. Um, you know, I just started looking around and I was thinking to myself like, man, like, my cousins, they're, they're either in prison or they're dead. You know, some of these homies that I had, they, they've gone to prison at an early age, 15, 16 years old, looking at 15 to life, or they're right. dead. You know, and for me, you know, I, I looked at my life. And again, I, I know it's for some people, for some of your listeners, it would probably be hard to, to believe. But you know, at this young age, I knew that I wanted, I wanted to get married someday. I wanted to have a family someday. I, I wanted to be a father someday and growing up without a father, it's a very, very, uh, there's a lot of negative implications that come with it. And I understood that about my life and I understood that about how it affected me and how, how really, how hard 
or how much my heart hurt. And I didn't want that for my, for my kids growing up. And so I, I suppose slowly over the course of time, you know, I began to make these, these changes and really looking back, you know, and looking at the, the scope of my life and from a uh, bird's eye view, it's, it's really just God guiding me through the way, you know, guiding me along right. the way. Like, hey, hey, son, this, you know, drop this and drop that. And it's not really so, so abrupt, right? It's, it's things gradual here and there. You know, it's like, I don't know, when, when I have a child, you know, I, I plan on teaching. I, I told you I'm having a daughter. I plan on right. teaching her things, right? Teaching her some morality and structure and things like that. But, of course, that will come with time and little by little, not all at once, so that she doesn't become overwhelmed. And that's basically how God did it for me, you know, over the course of my life. And so. Yeah, I can't really tell you like, hey, there was this one moment of, of an epiphany. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. It, it was just, it was just really, you know, gradual and, and just coming to to that realization. Just really, just kind of setting in reality, setting in to, to where I was, where I came from, and where I'm going, depending on what choices I make moving forward. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you're describing there is something that's come up on this podcast before, and it's just the common grace of God and and in your life you experienced his common grace and he yeah. you know he helped you make uh good decisions or better decisions than uh what was being made around you um and move you in a certain direction how how old were you um how old were you when your when your father was murdered I was I was young I was uh 9 months old I believe so I okay. you know I didn't I mean so I was there know. but obviously yeah. Yeah, I don't remember it. You know, I didn't. I didn't see it. And if I did see it, obviously, I wouldn't remember it. I was nine months old. Okay. Um, Can you talk about how how that happened, or or what happened? Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll talk about that. Um, Now, before I get into it, yeah, uh, I'm going to let you know who did it. And you know, for during the interviews with uh, you know with uh, the Review Journal and and CNN and so forth, I didn't mention who it was uh, because I, I love this person very much. And I didn't want to to embarrass them, but you know I'll mention this for for your podcast. Um, but I do want to just throw this out there. I love them, love this individual deeply, and I've forgiven this individual um, with my whole heart. Um, and of course, that took time to happen. But right. now to to, to to kind of get into this, um, so it was my it was my uncle, it was my mother's brother uh, who did it. And you know I won't go too much in, into his background or anything like that, but but just know that. Um, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily a great influence as far as like a role model goes um, for really for, yeah, he just really wasn't. But now the, the situation from what I've been told, uh, you know, when I was younger, my mother wasn't really honest about it. And then, of course, at, at some point she she told us the truth. They were both my mother and my father were were both addicts at the time. Um, you know, and I'm sure you know this, Anthony, um, after working what, 20 years in in law enforcement, you're still doing it now. Uh, you know, when an addict does not get their drugs, they, well, they, they really become volatile. They they become, they become pretty much a, a, I guess an even worse version of, uh, of themselves while they're sober. Right. If that, if that makes any sense, but so, so. Yeah, apparently, you know, my father, um, had, you know, wasn't getting high around that time, and uh, he was a little bit more irritable than, than normal. Um, my, uh, my, it, he had just beaten up, just beat up my mom, I guess, the night prior. So my mom had like some vengeance in her heart, 
And so my mom, this is how ridiculous this, this ended up being. My mother allowed my uncle to use my dad's shorts. And I guess this was, I guess they were his favorite shorts. And uh, when, when my dad asked my mom about it, she told him what happened. He got, he got angry. Um, and he started beating her up again. And, you know, my uncle walks in the house at this time, at some point in time, while he's, while he's just going off on her. And, uh, you know, he confronts him. Um, you know, they, they get into a verbal argument. One thing leads to another. And, and my father winds up with a knife in his chest. Now, now that, that's kind of like a watered down version. So, right. So my uncle was getting out of prison when I was about 14 years old, and I wasn't asking about this. Everyone told me not to, right, because he was just getting out of prison. And personally, I didn't care because I was 14 years old without a father, and I wanted answers, period. You know, right. it, it grew up, I grew up with all this bitterness in my heart, hatred, even to the point where I just thought about, you know, stabbing him myself. But, yeah, I just wanted some answers. And so I talked to my uncle about it, and, you know, he ended up telling me, he said, listen, he goes, and it, I, I he was he was so raw with me, so straightforward. You know, he said, "You know, uh, your your dad. I, I didn't want to kill your dad, but uh, you know what what ended up happening was he was. I mean, he was beating up my sister, and uh, you know, your dad said it's you or me today. And uh, he grabbed a nearby broom, and I grabbed whatever else was inside, and we came at each other. And so he ended up dying in my mom's arms. And um, mm. you know, that was that was pretty much." how that happened, right? Years later, right. actually, years later, uh, recently, I want to say it was either this year or last year, my mom actually ended up telling me that, uh, it was actually my, she told my sister this, and then my sister told me, and then of course I confronted my mom, but um, she ended up saying you know, that she wanted something to happen to my dad. And I, you know, I called my mom and I was like, hey, look, just be straightforward with me. I'm a grown man now, like, you know, like just, just tell me the truth, you know, uh, what, what really happened to my dad? Like, did you, did you want it to die? And she said, your dad, you know, beat, and of course I'm using some, some, um, right. Some PG words, I guess he, you know, right. he, she said, your dad beat me up so bad the night prior that all I had in my heart was just, I just wanted him to, to, to get hurt. He beat me up so bad. He had slapped your brother who was only what, maybe a, a year old. He was crying. And so my dad slapped him while he was, <clears throat> while he was crying in his crib. And then my mom tried to defend my brother. And then of course my dad beat up my mom and she goes, and all I wanted was your dad to get hurt. Hmm. And so, you know, she, she said, I knew your dad was going to get mad if I, if I, uh, let my brother use his shorts. And that's exactly what I did. And I, and I knew my brother was going to defend me. I knew my brother was going to, was going to hurt him. She goes, I didn't expect him to die, though, and I didn't want him to die. Wow. And so, you know, I, yeah, I appreciated that, that level of, of transparency from my mother, you know, and, and thinking back, right, you know, there's so many things that, you know, I thought about with this situation, and there's so many things, or really just one particular thing that, that God has revealed to me through all of this, you know, but, uh, you know, I, you know, thinking about it, in my mind, you know, I, I say to myself, like, can I even really blame her? You know, she, she was a single right. mother with, with, at the time, four kids. You know, she didn't have anybody really that she could go to. 
you know, because her mom had died. Her dad, she didn't have a great relationship with her dad, and her dad sexually abused her all throughout her childhood. Like, you know, this is, she was alone, you know? Right. Could I really blame her for wanting to, to, in her own way, defend herself in some, or at least, like, try to get back at, at someone who was bigger and stronger than her? Right. You know, I, I don't know. You know, all those years, I can only imagine... You know, I didn't tell her this while I was on the phone with her, you know, because I didn't want to pity her or anything like that. But all those years, you know, when I got off the phone, I say to myself, like, man, I can only imagine how guilty she must have felt growing up, you know, for for that night. Because at the end of the day, it all started over shorts, shorts right. that she knew that she shouldn't give away or let somebody borrow, you know. And so, right. uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's kind of what happened with my dad. Um, wow. But, yeah, you know, I, I do I do love and forgive my uncle very much. Um, and you know, he and I, we have different lifestyles and, you know, I don't think we could ever really become close, but, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, at least I think I do. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure he knows that I love him and I forgive him, you know, yeah. so that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. That is a incredible story. I think, I think one of the things that, uh, is, is incredible about it is the conversations that you've had with family members about what happened. And I think one of the one of the things that you know I kind of pulled out of that is that the level of honesty in those conversations and the and the truth, the a light being shine on the truth of of what actually happened uh, is so helpful to have any type of restorative process um, in that. Oh, yeah. Obviously, obviously, you know, God being involved in it um, utmost. But you know, when we're talking about forgiveness. Uh, you know, being able to uh, talk to truly repentant people who tell the truth about what happened—that uh, is—that's a huge step to be able to kind of bridge that gap and rebuild or try to rebuild any level of trust between people, especially uh, family members. I appreciate you sharing that yeah. story. When, uh, yeah, when, did, when did you become a Christian? So I, uh, I was saved when I was 13 years old. Um, now. Yeah, I was saved. I went to this church here in town um, called Pilgrim Rest Baptist Church, and uh, I was saved there. Um, but it, as soon as I was saved, as soon as I I accept Christ, accepted Christ into my heart, um, yeah, I was like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, as soon as that happened, you know, I well, I started doing my own thing. You know, right. I had moved away from the church, and uh, all these uh, feelings of uh, anger and bitterness and everything really started setting in, you know, from from my childhood, I guess, at least when I was younger. And I started um, I started getting involved in in quote unquote the streets. <laughs> right. You know, I, I don't want to go too much into detail with that. You know, um, we'll just kind of leave it at that, and you kind of, I guess, yeah. you and your listeners can can plug in where you want. <laughs> you yeah. Know, but uh, um, I. Again, of course, all that other stuff started happening as far as, you know, God leading me away from, from where I was headed. Um, but I didn't start walking with God until I was about 18 years old, um, okay. you know, where I actually committed my life to serving God um, until I was about 18 years old. Um, and that was right before I, I had enlisted in the military. And, you know, I started, in, you know, I was in the military. Um, I'd like to say I had a great relationship with God, of course. And then. And then I became a cop <laughs> and then things um, started becoming very real for me. And uh, my walk uh, with God definitely took, took some, some hits, if you will. And I know you kind of alluded that during the outline 
part alluded to that during the outline, which was I actually really appreciate you you doing that. Um, yeah, yeah, that level of authenticity is is, is I, I I value that very much. But yeah, it, it was yeah, it's it's my walk is definitely not has you know not you know it hasn't been as superb if you will um, compared to others, I guess. Well, I don't I don't know of any any uh, Christian's walk who's been superb. <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, yeah, we yeah. serve a yeah, we serve a great God, and and uh, you know He provided a way, a perfect way for imperfect people uh, to uh, to have relationship with Him. So, um, yeah, that that's a that's just an incredible story. So when you when you were going to this uh, small Baptist church, did you just walk in the doors on your own, or did you have someone that actually took you, or, or how did that happen? Yeah, my mom. My mom took us, um, and it okay. wasn't like something we didn't grow up. We obviously didn't. I mean, we didn't grow up, grow up in the church, but every once in a while, my mom would take us to okay. uh, to church. And this was just one of those times where she took us, and uh, the pastor. Um, I don't remember his name, but I remember. I do remember Deacon Graham. <laughs> it okay. was, uh, the pastor was was talking. Uh, he was in Romans. I believe it was Romans ten nine. You know that that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart, you know. Um, and then we repeated that and, and yeah, that's kind of what it was. We were going for a few weeks and then we moved away from that, um, from that area. Um, because again, we moved a lot and yeah. And then I started, yeah, going, going wayward. <laughs> wow. And then came Yeah. Back. That, that's, uh, yeah. uh, Romans ten nine is, is, uh, is my verse. I love that verse. That's my, my favorite verse. I think it's the most, uh, uh, um, just easiest, simplest way to share the gospel. Like that, if you confess oh, yeah. with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's like so succinct and just a, such an easy oh, way yeah. to share the gospel. Yeah. So the transition then, you know, you're 18, you go into the military. What, what was your journey? Like how, what made you want to get into law enforcement? What caused you to, to <clears throat> go like, Hey, this is the route I'm going to go in. Um, uh, the military actually, uh, okay. what, what did it? So I grew up, I grew up actually viewing police officers as the enemy. I grew up actually not liking police whatsoever. Um, I actually, yeah, I was not a fan of police. Uh, again, yeah, my, my perspective, just because of the environments that I grew up in and, and the people that were my family and the people that I associated with, yeah, the, the police were the enemy. What changed my mind um, really was when I was transitioning out of the military and I was kind of going through this, uh, I guess, I don't want to say identity crisis, but I was kind of like, what like i was kind of sad leaving the military you know that's kind of where yeah. that's where i wanted to, to be at growing up and so you know join the military infantry was my life infantry was easy all you had to learn to all you had to do really was just be fit shoot guns really well and if you ever got deployed overseas just survive you know it's pretty simple and pretty easy um, but one thing that the military gave me especially in the infantry <clears throat> i would actually venture to say that primarily in the infantry is camaraderie um, that that ability to completely dislike the guy to your left and to your right, but be wholeheartedly prepared to die for them. And mm. you can trust completely and confidently that they have the same perspective towards you, even if they don't like you. Uh, that was beautiful to me. That was like, that's a family. That's a, that's the, for me that, that I, I, I had that sense of a, a family in the military in that regard. And, yeah. um, you know, I was looking at the civilian sector and I was like, I was asking myself, because my, my wife even asked me, like, what, what is it about the military that, 
that you'll miss? Like, what do you, what, what did you like? So I was looking at it, you know, and I was like, oh, I really didn't like waking up at four or five a.m. You know, that's not something I'm really uh, keen to or anything like that. But camaraderie is where I ended up. Um, is where I was where I landed. And when I was looking at the civilian sector, I was thinking to myself, where can I find that? You know, you can't find that in any any company, any regular company. You can't find that anywhere else. You know, maybe firefighting, but <laughs> no, not really. You know, like. Um, right. I'm sure, you know, you know, sure, you know, maybe firefighters, but at the end of the day, who, like, where could I actually get that adrenaline dump to where, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely trying to, I don't know, we, law enforcement is where I ended up, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's where my, uh, that's where I kind of landed. And, and so from that point forward, as soon, you know, I'm the type of guy, right, man, like, as soon as my mind is made up on what I want to do, I go full speed ahead towards it. And so yeah. when, yeah, so when I made my mind up, um, I went full speed ahead in trying to get hired by a department um, yeah. in, in the Texas area. But of course that didn't work out. And so I, uh, I ended up coming back here to Vegas. Okay. Was that hard for you to come back to Vegas? I mean, did you, did you, had you told yourself I'm never going back there? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. My wife and I both. Yeah. I did not want to come back to Vegas. Uh, okay. Preferably my wife and I would have stayed in Texas. Uh, but because of my my juvenile background, um, you know, just because of the way I grew up, um, yeah, you know, there weren't many departments. Actually, well, obviously, there were no departments that, that were picking me up in Texas. And so, right. um, you know, as a man, you have to do what you have to do to, to provide for your family. And if that means, um, you know, uprooting your, your roots and planting your, your family somewhere else uh, to, to provide, you know, for your family, then you do that. And so that's, yeah. that's where, that's where my wife and I were. We had to make that compromise. I had to do that as a man and, and, uh, come back home and really swallow a pill of, of humility, uh, because we were also downsizing too. We had to move in with her, her grandparents, uh, to really just okay. get by, you know? And so that's kind of, so that, that's how that happened. Wow. Wow. So yeah. you, you alluded to it that, you know, your background did make it uh, a bit difficult for you to get into law enforcement how how long did it how, once you decide this is what i want to do how long did it take how many departments did you you know go through before before you <laughs> before one said hey we'll 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 take a we'll, we'll take a chance on you we'll bring you on because i did background investigations and a guy yeah. with your background like there would definitely be a lot of uh, uh warning flags <laughs> for me um, oh, yeah. i'm just being yeah. honest with you like there'd be a lot of warning flags, no, yeah, not, no, just yeah. of, not just because of things that you did, but because of things you experienced and knowing that, hey, this guy has experienced a lot of trauma in his life. Now I'm bringing him into a profession where he's going to experience more trauma. Like, is yeah. he going to be able to handle that? Like, those would be all things that as a background officer, if I was doing your background, I would really be, uh, you know, cautious about. So yeah, how many, how many departments do you think you applied with and how long did it take for you to get? get brought on all right yeah we're now we're now, now we're really getting into it <laughs> all right yeah so, <laughs> you don't have to answer uh, it. <laughs> no 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 it's no you're, you're good it's all good uh so um yeah you know i i applied for quite a quite a number of, uh, of departments in in texas man um you know i applied for Austin, and just to kind of give you an idea austin said don't even try again <laughs> really okay yeah they Oh yeah, yeah. Austin PD, they were not having it with me. 
Uh, I tried for Colleen. I tried for you know, just a few other, um, a lot of departments in, in Texas. It got to a point where I was so discouraged to apply for other departments that I would just call ahead to see if they would even give me a shot, you know, right. to see if I would even be worth their time. And if they said no over the phone, then I wouldn't even put in an application for them, you know. And so, yeah. um, you know, my juvenile background, man, it, again, you know, just, and this isn't like, don't get me wrong, like, you know, I, I wholeheartedly believe in accountability, right? Right. Um, you know, you, you you make your bed, lie in it, you know, fall on your sword. I, I'm I'm all for that, right? And so as a juvenile, uh, I do believe that juveniles are absolutely mature enough to know right from wrong. So I definitely made some wrong decisions when I was younger, right? But there was also some influencing factors. You know, I, I alluded to it before, you know, I was, you know, I was sexually abused as, um, or sexually violated as, as a child, you know, from, from another mm-hmm. uncle of mine and from a babysitter of mine and, and from somebody else. And, you know, uh, I was exposed to a lot, you know, just like, you know, how you said. And so, um, you know, as a result of that, I was becoming a victim of my circumstances as opposed to becoming a victor, if you will, as cheesy as that yeah. sounds. And so yeah. um, I got involved in a lot of things. And because of that, um, you know, those departments weren't looking at me. I came out to Vegas. And when I came out here, I was I came out here with my tail between my legs. You know, I, I had zero desire. Like, I still wanted to be a cop, but I, I was so discouraged to apply anywhere. Um, that I wasn't going to do it. And who actually encouraged me to do it um, was my grandfather. You know, and, and this isn't my biological grandfather. This is my, um, my, my sister's grandfather. So I, I, like I told you before, I have about seven, seven or eight siblings. My mother has like three, three different baby daddies, I think. Yeah. Three different baby daddies. Okay. And uh, yeah. this is one of, yeah, one of my, my sister's grandfather. He and I, I love him very much. He you know, ended up telling me like, Hey, just give it a shot. So I ended up applying for Metro. Metro said no thanks, um, but you know I could apply uh, in the future. And then the very last department, literally the very last department that I was ever going to apply for ever again, was Northtown. And wow. you know I was so yeah I was so discouraged for, to to apply to another agency because of all of the defeats and all of the the letdowns and everything that I didn't even tell my family that I applied um, to to Northtown. The only people, the only one, the only person that knew was my, was my wife and no one knew that I was going through the process. Um, but yeah, I, I was so defeated and, um, you know, I, I ended up going to go into their PT test and this is like something out of the pursuit of happiness with Will Smith, <laughs> you know, like I was, right. at, yeah, I, I was at, I was at the PT test and, you know, I was just praying and I was like, you know, God, if this is your will, please just give me an opportunity like to talk to somebody, I, I don't know, just give me an opportunity, please. And so while I'm, while I'm standing there, uh, just kind of set in my mind that this probably isn't going to happen for me and then I'm probably going to get disqualified anyways, uh, a lieutenant walks up. And I can't remember if it was, uh, I think he's retired now. Yeah, he is retired now. Lieutenant Glazier or um, Lieutenant uh, McAllister, you know, they were, you know, they were talking. Uh, you know, introducing themselves and so forth. And then, you know, I felt that very, really not feel, but that, that call, just like it was the night that I, you know, that I, that I met the kids. I was like, Hey, go talk to them. And again, I, I was so discouraged. I was so discouraged. I said, no. Right. And it's like, no, no, doesn't, he's, I'm not worth his time. He's not going to, he's not going to consider me. So he walks away. And so you ever, you ever hear that, uh, it's like a little, little story of a guy who was drowning. who's was, you know, God saved me and sends like a boat. And there's like three boats that pass by and then he dies and it's like, God, 
what did you say? And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, you three boats. You ever heard that story? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like this. Yep. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of like this. And so, so you know, that boat, that boat ends up, you know, sailing by. And then the next boat comes. And this is, this is the boat to get on, right? And it's right. the chief of police. And I'll never, it's, it's uh, Chief Perez, now retired Chief Perez. And uh, he's talking and he's introducing himself. And then he walks away. And again, while he's talking, you know, it's like, go talk to him. And I, again, I was so discouraged. I, I didn't do it. But he, he ends up walking away. And then I was like, forget it. Like, if this, if I'm going to talk to anybody, if anyone is going to have some sort of ear for me, I may as well let it be the chief. And so I ran, right. ran back, ran after him. And I'm like, hey, chief, chief. And he kind of whips around, you know, because he's a cop, right? He's like, who the heck's going <laughs> to come with me? Right. And it's like, hey, sir. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not in the suit. I'm in workout attire, you know, uh, so I'm not presentable by any means. And but I, you know, I talked to him. And I'm like, hey, like my name is Nicholas Quintana. I was like, um, you know, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is my background. These are my mistakes. And he's like, what specifically are they? And then I, I was, you know, I was embarrassed, right? I'm talking to the chief, but right. I, you know, I ended up telling him the, the truth. Like, hey, this is what, you know, I did. Like, but you know, I. I Join the military, like I turn my life around. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do better for my life and for my family. Like this, can you just please just give me a, a chance, just to just to hear me out? And not long after that, you know, I ended up getting invited to to proceed in the process and go through backgrounds. And you know, backgrounds was was quite interesting too because yeah. you know, again, that was also discouraging, man. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, that was a little discouraging too because it's like I'm pretty sure everyone else's file is only like a few pages long, and here I'm presenting them with with a whole encyclopedia of my life. You know, it's like right, yeah. But uh, and then you know, Northtown, uh, they gave me a shot. I went, I went into. They invited me for an interview, and that was like the second to second to last step was the interview. Actually, no, that I think that was the interview. The last step, anyways. So I go in for, for the interview and I'm waiting in kind of like this four year area. And, uh, uh I have a good friend of mine. His name is Tanner McInich. He, uh, he was <clears throat> talking to, to the captain and to some of the background guys and he's chopping it up with them and they're talking about baseball. And I, I can't really relate with anybody because I don't watch, I don't watch sports and I'm just sitting there quietly. And I'm like, man, like, I, I don't know if I'm going to get hired. I'm not, like, I'm not even making a good impression right now, you know? Um, and right. there was like this bowl of candy in front of me. And so I just like, forget it. I'll eat a piece of candy. <laughs> and so I eat the candy. And then I get invited into to talk with the, the chief. And, you know, there's my thick, thick file right there in front of them. And, uh, I look at every single one of them and shake all of their hands. And, you know, we talk and, you know, the chief looks at me and he goes, is this everything? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, are you sure? I said, yes, sir. He goes, all right. <clears throat> and then he looks around. And, uh, you know, they they asked me their questions or whatever. And, um, you know, there's, there's a guy named Captain Carnegie, you know, the chief asked around like, Hey, what do you guys think? They're like, yep, let's, let's hire him. Let's hire him. And Captain Carnegie looks at me and he goes, I like him. I like him a lot. I like him a lot. He, you know, he, he really grew from where he was at. Let's hire him. <clears throat> and then I got a yeah. job. <laughs> Dude, that's, and, you know, the rest is history after that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I think one of the biggest things that, that just came out of that story and how you got hired is the fact of telling the truth. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I did backgrounds on that did not even have remotely, you know, um, and I, I'm not saying this as a, as a negative against you, remotely the same amount of stuff that you had in your jacket. 
and would still lie to me about it. And, and I would tell people, I would say, listen, everyone has stuff in their background that they're not proud of, that they're embarrassed about, that they shouldn't have done, that maybe they did and didn't get caught for. I will find out about it. All I'm asking is that you're honest with me. If you're honest with me, yep. we can probably work through that stuff or, or at least have a chance to work through it. If you lie to me about it, yeah. we're done. And, and so, yeah. you know, yeah. if anyone out there is listening and is going to go through the background process, just tell the truth. I mean, you, you don't even yeah. have a chance if you don't tell the truth. Um, and, and yeah, that, yeah, yeah, you know, so, that, that, that's so true too. You know, when I, uh, when I walked out of there, man, it was, it was such a great feeling. It, like I said, it's like the pursuit of happiness. It was like, well, when Will Smith finally got the job and you walked him, <laughs> walking out and people are walking past him and you're trying to clap and go that slow clap, you know? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. You know, you're, you're absolutely right though. I hear the same thing everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad, you know, I think a lot of times when we're trying to, you know, when, when departments are trying to hire people, they, they want the cleanest you know, people with like, you know, nothing negative in their background. Um, you know, sometimes I think it's, it's, uh, imperative to look at the person, uh, and see, yeah, obviously, you know, you can't, you can't be hiring people that have committed murder or anything like that, or have like really, you know, crazy felonies on the record and stuff like that. But, you know, to be able to look at someone and be like, Hey, these are things he did when he was a juvenile. Here are things he's done as an adult. Um, you know, he's been in the military, he has an honorable discharge, like, you know, he, he's, he's taking steps and to give someone the ability to, uh, to step in that has the level of experience you do, I think is, is super beneficial, uh, can be super beneficial to, to a department. Um, so, you know, it's just, a it's, it's incredible to hear like everything you went through to get hired. Uh, but I, you know, I also appreciate your humility about it. Like you understood it. You understood that, Hey, I made decisions in my background that could keep me out of getting this career. It was kind of like your last ditch effort there in, um, North Las Vegas or North town as you call it. And, uh, yeah, so it's just awesome that, um, that it worked out. And how long have you been with the department now? I'm approaching my five year mark in January. Okay. So, all right. I've been with them for, for a little bit of time. Yeah, and in a depart- department like that, with as as busy as you guys are, and the and the size that you are, um, obviously you have you know a, a a lot of experience in those in those five years that you've been there. Uh, one that you uh, talked about or expressed to me uh, before you know we we did this episode is um, you know you're in training, you go to a murder suicide um, that definitely had an impact on you, um, and and when you were telling me about this or writing about this. There were some things you you wrote about your view on the person who committed the murder and then conviction that you got about what you thought about that person. And, and you know, it was challenging to me because as a police officer mm-hmm. who's, you know, uh, done the job now for over 20 years, I, 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 I don't have that level. I, I, there are many times where I don't have the same. Um, uh, thoughts or the same uh, maturity as a believer as 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 you had. Can you just talk about that call? Why it impacted you so greatly, and and your initial thoughts about that murder suspect, and then you know what kind of what what God showed you through that? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't even remember what I wrote to you, but um, I can still definitely talk talk about it. I uh, 
Uh, you, but, you basically were just like, hey, the murder suspect, he's a dirtbag or other. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, you know, and then, you know, basically, you know, you just felt like uh, the Holy Spirit was just saying to you, oh, God yeah. was just saying to you, hey, I died for him just like I, I died for you. Like, oh, yeah. Kind of yeah, really so. driving home the humanity of that person, regardless of what they did. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually still experience that now. So that particular yeah. call, you know, when I when I became a cop, you know, I, I distinctly remember praying, and I, you know, I said, you know, God, show me, show me what it is, whatever that you want me to know. You know, help help me to know you deeper. Um, you know, I don't want to just know of God. I, I want this genuine, authentic relationship with the only Father that I've actually ever had in my life. Right, although He's not physically here, He's been here. At this point, I'm saved, and so, you know, that perspective I was talking about earlier. I had already developed this perspective of okay, this is this is my my provider, my caretaker. This is the one who who nurtures me and loves me. Okay, God, let's help me to know you deeper, right? And so, um, for this particular call, this is my first uh, homicide call, just generally. But I've been mm-hmm. on a dead body call, and that was that's you know I have my own perspective on that one too, from a spiritual perspective that uh, with that one. But I, I to be on a, a fresh homicide. Um, I, I hadn't had that uh, up until this point. And so it was uh, It was during, I want to say October or November. I don't remember the time frame. It was late in the year, though, because uh, I was in field training at this time. And, um, you know, the call comes out while we're in briefing. And, you know, as a new officer, a young guy, too, you have all this adrenaline. You're like, man, let me go ahead and get there. Let me get there. Let me get there. Um, but there was already units that are that, that got there before me or gotten there before me, um, and they were recovering. Uh, the it was a, a a male who shot a female. A male ended up being they, they ended up being uh, siblings, and he had shot the male older brother had shot his sister in the face. Uh, the units that got there before me um, ended up pretty much rescuing, well, trying to rescue her. She was shot in the face. She was still alive. Um, from what I understand, at that at that particular time, and then they transferred her, where she ultimately came uh, to her okay. injuries. But when I got there, um, you know, you know, we were setting up the scene, clearing it out, uh, making sure everyone was safe. SWAT guy called out, blew up the blew up the door, um, and you know, through the camera, we could see the guy was a little a little maybe a few feet behind the door, um, and his body was pressed against pressed into the wall. Um, I personally think that that's uh, probably due to uh, either I don't know if he stood up and shot himself or if it was the uh, the blast wave that pushed him into into the wall. Uh, okay. But when I got there, you know, when when SWAT and everything, when everything's all said and done, it's all cleared out. You know, it's just me there. And I remember <clears throat> walking up to his body, and first off, I mean, I'm sure you're you're you have experience in this after 20 years of law enforcement, but. And any any of your listeners, if they're um, first responders, whether they're police or or fire or medical, they know that when there's a, a very gruesome, bloody scene, it looks like somebody took a bucket of red paint and just tossed it all over the place. And it's just yeah. thick, and the texture is very unique. The smell is very unique, and you know, I, I was just soaking all soaking it all in, really. Uh, this this experience, and I was looking at this guy, and you know he. Yeah, like I said, he was pressed against the wall. His head was slightly uh, tilted to the left, uh, and there were blood and brains just kind of leaking out of his skull. And um, he had shot himself. And I remember looking at him, and I was like, "Wow, you know what a, what a scumbag!" You know, like he shot his right. sister in the face, and then 
shoots himself. He's too much of a coward to to face justice and shoots himself. What a scumbag! And and this happens now. And and this is me just being honest, right? Um, you know, I still have those thoughts sometimes too. Like, hey, this person's a scumbag. But as soon as I say that, I can't make it up. It's just as clear as, as as the voice that spoke to me, not audibly, but right into my heart. The night that I, you know, I met the kids, but um, it, it's, it's the Holy Spirit saying, I died for him too, Nick. I died for him too. And immediately, as soon as, that, as, soon as, as, soon as God said that to me, I, I had this conviction. I typically do have this conviction, oh, that comes over my heart. And, and well, you know, I have to ask God for forgiveness for being, right. you know, just forgetting who, who I am, you know, and that I'm no better, right? Because I'm just as human as this person is. And my heart is just as capable of of becoming corrupted as much as this person was in their moment of of whatever they were going through at the time. You know what I mean? Like, and right. so and and now that I still experience that, you know, when I see somebody and, and obviously I'm not feeling too happy about the person. Like, oh, this person's a scumbag. It's like, well, son, I died for him too. I died for her too. I died for them too. You know, and so and and it's it's such a humbling thing, right? If there's one thing that that law enforcement has taught me it is how the depth and and again this is just like a superficial understanding it's the depth of god's love mercy and grace you know i i I shared with you some of my background when i was a child right you you know i've experienced these things as a child but i had years to kind of like either reconcile with it or compartmentalize it as a law enforcement officer, and I'm specifically speaking towards law enforcement now, as a law enforcement officer, we see depravity not on a year-by-year basis, not on a you know decade-by-decade basis. We see it on a daily right. basis. Depending on where you work, you see it on a daily basis. And depending yes. on where you work, you see it on almost an hourly basis. You know, you, you could go to a homicide in the morning clear from that homicide, go to a suicide following that, clear from that suicide, and then go to a, a traffic accident where a DUI driver kills a family of eight, you know, and it's, and then you go from that and you, you know, and then you have no moment, really no moment to kind of like process it. And so for me, <clears throat> when I think of that and I look at the reality of it, of just how depraved uh, we can all really just end up being, um, you know, I'm reminded that while wow, God really does love us to, enough to spare us from us, you know, that he yeah. does, like, it, it's, it's such a love that you can ask my wife that some, sometimes when I ponder over it, I, 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 I start crying, you know, it's not like sobbing, right. like, but, but you know, right. I, I just, it's, yeah, it's crazy to think about, you know what I mean? Like, how can, how can God love us so much in the midst of all of this depravity? And he right. loves us so much, like that. Even this person who just blew his sister's face out and it blew his brains out, that he died for that person too. You know, and if yeah. that person took the moment to to accept him into his son into into his heart, you know, then he he's afforded that salvation, much like you and I are. It's it's crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me. Uh, just right now, there's um, I, I guess Netflix has a documentary out about Jeffrey Dahmer. And there's a mm-hmm. clip floating around 
on the internet of an interview Jeffrey Dahmer did um, uh, before he died. And uh, he, he confesses uh, Christ, like he, he, uh, he proclaims Christ as his savior. And so this clip has been floating around the internet and people, you know, are, you know, you you have two, you have two sides. You have people are like, um, you know, no way that guy will never get to heaven. And then you have, you know, people like you and I who say, uh, listen, if, if, you know, God, God judges his heart, but if he made a genuine commitment and he confessed Christ, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Mm -hmm. Dahmer's in heaven. Like if he confessed and believed he's in heaven and we can, as humans, like it, you know, I'm not going to lie. That turns my stomach a little bit to to say that, you know, but, but, you know, that's the gospel. The gospel saves people. And it saves people like you, like me, and it saves people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, and yeah. and that I think there it for me, the challenging part of doing this job is there have been moments to my shame where I've had an absolute hatred of certain people. Yep. Like I've I've oh, yeah. I've seen a level of depravity and I've seen people do yep. things that are so evil that yeah. you know there there there's a level of hatred there and while you were talking oh, yeah. i it, it reminded me of like first john i think it's first john 3 um if if i have the passage right yeah first john 3 where it talks about if you if you hate your brother if you hate yeah. you you're mm-hmm. you're a murderer like basically yeah, you're you're no <laughs> you're no less yeah. yeah you're no less guilty than a than a murderer um and yeah. and you know it just it so i think for for People like you and I who who uh, you know have a faith in Christ, the job at times can uh, point a very clear light on our own sin, and it can oh, point yeah. a very clear light on what Christ has saved us from. I think for people who aren't believers, they ask me questions like, "How can God allow this to happen? How can He allow you know a sister to get shot in the face?" And then her brother to kill himself and not face justice. How can he allow little kids to die? How can he allow this? How can he allow that? And for you and I, I think, you know, and I always tell people when I'm talking to them, you know, I look at it from the other way. How can a holy God who hates sin not destroy us, not destroy all of us? Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. is the hope that yeah. we have in in Christ. I mean, that's really the the point. Um, you know, it it pushes. It pushes those who have had their spiritual eyes open towards Jesus. It pushes those who have not had their spiritual eyes opened away from him. Um, and, and, you know, just forces me or, or compels me to, to share the gospel uh, with them. So, sorry, I got off on a little, I got you, you got me. No, got no, no, you reach you there. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're good, man. No, I, I, I agree with everything you said too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, you're, you're so, totally fine. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, you talked, uh, about some of your experiences here, you know, I, you've, you've also shared with me that you've been to, you know, multiple homicide scenes, you've been to a triple homicide, you've, you've seen a lot of yeah. violence, you've dealt with a lot of violence and, and trauma in your background, uh, growing up. How do you like, how do you manage that? How do you on a on a day in day out basis? Um, manage that in a, in a healthy way and, and just, you know, stay on, stay on point and not get all wrapped up in your, in your head. So, uh, initially 
I didn't initially, you know, one of the things uh, that I asked God for uh, was to show me things that I just the unforgiveness in my heart. If there's anyone that I, or anything that I haven't forgiven, anyone that I haven't forgiven, just reveal that to me. And he did all of it. Um, yeah. And, and it was very, very tough to deal with. Initially, uh, I, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't coping at all. I was actually compartmentalizing, doing the typical cop thing or typical first responder thing. Um, you know, I was compartmentalizing it and, uh, you know, it was really just bleeding into my marriage and bleeding into my personal life. Um, there was a point where you know, I was coming home and I was shutting down. I wasn't really talking about life. I started drinking a little bit. I actually started drinking a lot of it um, and I had to yeah. stop doing that. But what I ended up learning through all of that, um, and as cheesy as it sounds, is, you know, God showed me that there's a lot that I didn't forget people for. You know, the things that I thought, you know, I mentioned before, you know, as a child, when I went through all these traumatic things, either learn to reconcile with it or compartmentalize it. Well, as a child, you're not, you're not, at least for me, I wasn't taught anything about reconciliation. I wasn't really taught right. about forgiveness. I wasn't really taught about dealing with the things that I went through. Rather, I just stuffed it away. I stuffed it away. But as a cop, when you have a cop who's experienced trauma as a child, when they, are, when they go to a call for service and it's similar to the things that they went through as a child, man, I'm getting goosebumps t- telling you this. Yeah. It, it, it is, it's, it's, it resurfaces and it doesn't right. just resurface. It's right in your face, right? And that right. smack that you heard is, a, is me punching my hand. It's right in your face. And right. for me, you know, I started dealing, it wasn't just the trauma of the job. It was now dealing with the trauma of my childhood. And it's like, God, what, what am I doing here? Like, what, what, how do I deal with this? And one thing, you know, that I told you about, you know, when I prayed that prayer, God, show me, you know, who you are and, and help me to, you know, let's just walk together and let me help me to know you better is that forgiveness component, right? And for a while, I used to ask myself, well, what is forgiveness? What is that, right? And typically, the at least the general idea is that forgiveness is forgetting what happened to you. No, man, like that's, that's impossible. We're human. Right. It's impossible to forget something that hurts us. We remember it. Our body remembers it. Our minds remember it out of survival so that it doesn't happen again. And what I've learned uh, in my walk with God and, and throughout my experience as a police officer is forgiveness is really just, it's not forgetting what happened, but not holding accountable the actions or deeds or whatever of someone against that person anymore. It's literally what Christ did for us on the cross, not holding right. us accountable anymore. He's taking that burden of sin upon himself so that we don't have to bear that. And, and for me now, now that I'm almost five years on the job and, and whatnot, you know, I've, my coping now is really just as cliche as it sounds is, is it, I talk to God and I talk to God, not in like, in, in, you know, kind of like a structured type of way. Like, don't get me wrong. There is structure to it, but it's more of like right. you and I talking. It's like, yeah. I'm talking to my father. I'm talking to my best friend. Like the way, the best way I, I, I heard it was, if you were on a walk with your best friend, how would you guys talk? You know, and that's yeah. kind of how I picture it. Like I'm on a walk with God and we're in my favorite place, which is Mount Charleston over here. And I'm just telling him about my day or I'm telling him about my week. Uh, and, and outside of that, you know, sometimes <laughs> you're probably going to laugh. Sometimes I, I listen to classical or I listen to lo-fi and I'll write poems. Um, like uh, right now, 
I'm working on a poem um, to kind of cope with something that I went through not, not too long ago, actually this last week um, to get it off my chest. Um, you know, and, and I just do those things where I'll go out and I'll, I'll, I'll hike. Right. But it doesn't mean that it, like, that's not to say that these you know, memories from the call or from, from the job doesn't pop up. Like sometimes I'll, I'll be driving and next thing I know, I see a guy's brains blown out that, you know, from a suicide that I was on a couple years ago. And it's like, wow. Right. All right. <laughs> like that just, yeah. you know, like, okay, I don't know why that just popped up, but whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I just, I let it play out. I let it play out. I let it do its thing. Right. I let the memories go and I, I'll just listen to the classical. I'll, I'll just kind of, I'll just breathe. I'll exercise some, some box breathing in a very discreet way. And I'll just, I'll just continue to, to move on with my life. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's these things that we go through, man, is not there. They don't just go away. You know, it's this yeah. thing that you learn to live with, you know, and that's kind of where, what I've learned as far as how to cope with it. You know, you know, as far as my childhood goes, you know, I'd like to say by God's grace, I've forgiven everyone um, who's hurt me, you know, hurt me and, and, and violated me, especially the sexual violations violated me in such a, such a, a very uh, atrocious way, you know, um, you know, that's, that's, that's how I cope with those, uh, with those, those memories and those, and those traumas, I guess, uh, as a child, but as, as an adult now, as a cop, how I deal with the trauma is, is exactly, it's practical, more practical in those um, right. more practical approaches. But, yeah. 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 No, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I think you touch on, on, you know, uh, 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 it's very apparent that you have a, a firm understanding on what forgiveness is. And, and like you said, it's not forgetting. And it's also yeah. doesn't forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to have, you know, a relationship there. I, I think sometimes we get that confused too, that if we forgive someone, then we also need to be friends with them or the, the, uh, friendship or the family right. uh, relationship needs to be restored. Well, obviously that if, if we've truly forgiven, uh, we want to move in that, in that direction of reconciliation. But a lot of that comes down to the level of repentance and the truth. Yeah. of, yeah. you know, coming from the other person. So yeah. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, just, just really, really good. Um, I'm going to press you here a little bit. You talk, you said you're, you're working on a poem about something that just happened this, this past week. And, and that's one way that you relax music and everything. Do you want to yeah. uh, talk about what, what happened? Like what, what you're, what you're dealing yeah. with and <laughs> what you're trying to get down yeah. on paper? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it wasn't in comparing, you know, you, some of your listeners, if they're if they're cops or first responders, you know, they'll probably think that well, this isn't the most pressing thing. But uh, it was a um, it was a it was a guy. Uh, it, it was a dead guy who whose neighbor called on him because they hadn't seen him in about a week and a half. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm like very sensitive to smells. So okay, um, if I smell something bad, like very very smell very very sensitive to smells. If I smell something bad, um, I'll typically I'll probably vomit. Right. But I can also okay. smell uh, things from pretty far off. And so this this particular guy, um, <clears throat> yeah, he, he, he had been even decomp, right? He's um, right. been going through the decompos- decomposition process. And so I could smell him from out the house, but it was very, uh, very faint. Um, it wasn't until we breached his door that, that I took a few steps closer to his door where that smell really just blitzkrieged my respiratory system. And I just projectile right. vomited like on the side of the house. but. <laughs> The poem is specifically about God's grace um, and really going back towards the first um, towards the first book, Genesis, and how 
our sin kind of leaves us dead um, spiritually and why it's kind of understandable that God can't, you know, he can't really associate with, well, he, well, he just won't associate with them because that, that atrociousness, that just the odor alone of that decomposing body is just so mm-hmm. vile that, you know, you know, I don't want to be around it. And like for me, I didn't want to be around that, that body. Is, walked in right. there just to see his body, just to verify, okay, yep, he's, he's dead. And then I got immediately out the house. But there was also right. more to it to me, like, you know, the, the house is kind of like a representation of who we are, you know, how, how we take care of our house. Like what's, what is the, um, what is, who are we personally, you know, who, who, mm-hmm. who are we on the inside, you know, are we dead inside or, you know, it's because the house is actually beautiful, you know, we're given off the yeah. appearance of, of a beautiful home, but we're really dead inside, you know, that's kind of the, so that's where I'm, I'm leaning towards the poem. And so, um, I actually asked God to, to help me, um, you know, write this one, but I, I when I write them, I, I don't like, I don't post them on social media. I actually post right. them on the Bible app because I know that because I, yeah. I know that no one will read it. <laughs> you know, I have like two <laughs> two people that read them, you know, and so you know, right. I, I, I I write them there. So, yeah, no, I yeah. I don't know about that. I mean, I yeah, I mean that's I haven't talked to someone yet that writes poetry to uh, to deal with stuff. I mean, hey, I I love it. I mean, I wish I could, I wish I could write poetry. I, I can't write poetry. Um, I can't sing either. So I'm not a real big musical guy, but Hey, you know, that's it, it, the, that's why I ask people because everyone's different. And, you know, I, I ask yeah. a similar question to a lot of people and everyone has like different things that, that they, uh, that they do, um, or yeah. that helps them, uh, you know, outside of, outside of their faith or, or some of some, some guys I talk to don't have a faith, but. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's just, uh, it's interesting. So thanks for, thanks for sharing. So yeah, man. So, you know, you're, you, you, you want a very prestigious, uh, cue the dip award on this, on this podcast, on this humble little podcast. Oh, sweet. Um, sweet. <laughs> but it, it's, it, you know, I, that's actually how, how we kind of connected you. Um, I, yeah. I like, you know, we have this, this segment that I do on the podcast, it's called kicking up the dust in pursuit. And, you know, I, I just highlight the work of an officer, uh, on every single episode. Um, and I call it cue the dip. And, um, that's actually how we got in contact because I highlighted you in one of my podcast episodes. I then, uh, did what every good cop does. I did a little bit of Facebook stalking and, um, I (laughs) found who I believed was you and your wife. And, uh, yeah, just kind of sent you guys a, a message and said, Hey, this is who I am. I, I, uh, you know, talk about what you guys just did, uh, with these five kids on the podcast. And from there, yeah, we just kind of, you know, had a little bit of back and forth on social media. And then, you know, a little bit ago, I reached out to you and said, Hey, would you, would you want to come on and, and talk? And I didn't know you were a Christian at that point. Um, once I connected mm-hmm. with you on social media and started seeing some of the stuff you were putting out there and everything, I was like, I, this guy, I think this guy's a believer. And, um, so yeah, it's just been really great to get to know you and talk to you. It's been awesome talking to you on this podcast. Um, but I wanted to, yeah, kind of break down that call, that cue the dip call where you went, um, what the call was about, uh, how you got in contact with these five or how you came to get to know these five kids and, and yeah, can you just talk about that incident and, and, uh, how it happened? Yeah. 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 Um, so it was, it was, uh, January. Yeah. It happened in January. Yeah. Early this year. Yeah. I was on lunch, um, when this call came out and, uh, 
you know, it, it's just like how I said in the interviews and, and whatnot. Um, you know, it's just like how any other police officer who's currently working or previous, previously working, you know, that, that hot tone came out. And, um, you know, when it came out, I heard the details uh, of the call and for every officer and even, I don't know about fire medical, but every officer, we kind of were very intentional on what we listened to as far as the details of the call. Right. And so, right. you know, I was like, okay, well I'm on lunch. I'm hearing the details. Okay. I'm going to listen now to how many people are going to pipe up and go to this call. If there's enough people to go. Um, Cause at the time, I think we only, we only had a, a handful of officers to cover the entire Northwest area. That's like seven officers, I believe seven or eight officers. So that's, very few amount of officers to cover a very large area. And so, but I was listening to it and I was like, okay, well, there's, there's enough people to go. Um, and I didn't want to go like at all. I didn't want to go even a little bit. And so, but then just like how I mentioned before and like for pretty much my entire life in, in very uh, different ways, the Holy Spirit, um, I, I said in the interviews, it's just an abrupt feeling or abrupt urge. It was, it was a Holy Spirit. Uh, but of course, during right. those interviews, you know, I know that not everyone is a believer. I didn't want to meet them immediately turn them off to the story or anything, you know. Right. Um, but for you know, I kind of the intent was so that they could become, you know, interested and then of course learn that, oh, okay, this is God doing this. Wow, let me let me learn about this God. Let me learn about you know who Christ is. That that was the intent. That's why I use that verbiage in, in those interviews. Anyways, um, so yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit said go. And it's like I said before, it's not an audible voice like you, how you and I are speaking. Right. It's right in my heart. It's as clear as day. It's that same, very same voice that, that says, Hey, Nick, I died for them too. Hey, Nick, you know, when I was, when I was starting to, to walk away, um, you know, while I was becoming a cop or while I was a cop, you know, that very same voice that was saying, Hey, Nick, come, hey, son, come home. I love you. Come home that very same voice. And I knew exactly who it was. I knew exactly who it was. And I said, no. And to give you context, I didn't go, in, uh, I didn't go into detail about it um, during those interviews. But look, man, you know, at the time that this call came out, my wife and I were going through some severe marital issues. Um, and not just that, I had a good friend of mine who, a good friend of mine from in, in EOD school who had killed himself in November of 2021. And a week after his funeral, I responded to a suicide. He hung himself. I responded to a suicide that was just like his, where I found it was a young lady about 30 years old who hung herself after a breakup. And I, when I found her body, uh, she, was, she hung herself from her, her bedroom door uh, with a hair straightening iron. And we had to break the door open and when I saw her, I immediately saw my, my friend and mm. it, just this overwhelming emotion came over me and, you know, I can't break down on scene, of course. Right. So, you know, and then and like a week after that, or actually a few days after that, my wife and I got into a huge fight, um, you know, a very, very bad fight, uh, short of, short of getting physical. We, we got into a huge argument and, um, right. you know, we weren't, we weren't on the best of terms. And so when I say that I didn't want to go to this. I meant, I meant it. It was like a, it was like an right. absolutely not, you know, and in the month of December, you know, I was going through some personal things myself where really, man, I just lost all hope. And, and, and I uh, was just very apathetic about things. But of course God intervened during that, during that moment too. But, you know, when I said no, um, again, it came go. Hmm. And so I got up, I was like, fine. 
you know, it's kind of like a, like a kid who has an attitude, you know, like, you're like a, like a teenage right. kid, you know, you're like, all right, fine, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, all right, I'll do it, <laughs> you know? And so, and here I am, I'm talking to the Holy Spirit like this, you know, it's like, what a brat, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, I get up and I go to this call and it's just like every other, every other shooting call or homicide, you know, it's very chaotic. Um, a lot of, a lot of sirens, a lot of lights and so on and so forth. Um, I found, or uh, I didn't personally find, um, the children's father, but, uh, by my supervisor did actually good, great guy, great, great guy, Sergeant Andrew Santos. I would work for him in a heartbeat. I would die for this man. He's a great supervisor anyways. Um, and we're there and, uh, you know, he, he, his, he, he was gone, you know, there was, he was, yeah, there was no saving him. He was riddled, riddled with bullets really. Um, you know, and so I was on this call for quite a while. And, uh, I don't remember how long I was on it for um, until I learned uh, that that he had he was leaving behind five kids, and the person who was alleged to have done this was was their mother, and so immediately you know you're you're again I keep right. mentioning this you're a seasoned officer you already know okay wow you know they're not he's they're not going with their mom dad is gone right you know and then of course as the call goes on you know I learned that they don't have at least at the time we were under the impression that they didn't have anybody stateside um like at all and so hmm. you know i started talking to the kids and you know they were, they were great kids they are they are still great kids um you know and and i was immediately reminded of my father you know and right. how you know i i my father was killed by my uncle and i was you know i was overwhelmed with with empathy towards him and uh you know it, it was just it was, yeah man it was talking to the kids and you know, I was trying to talk to them you know about forgiveness and things like that but how do you do that you know right. like, yeah. you can't really like their their father just passed away from their mother that's like this is a t- conversation for another time right but in my mind I was like I don't know if I'm ever going to have another time right but as a time right. as as I'm on this call as as time goes on uh again the holy spirit's like take them in and I'm like what what do you mean? Like, you know, like I'm like having this right. conversation, you know, like this is, this is like, no, <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean? And again, take them in, you know? And so of course, it, uh, time goes on and, and I'm getting ready to clear from the call. And, uh, now let me, I kind of fast forward a little bit. I actually left the call. So I okay. fast, you know, fast forward. Yeah. So I actually left the call because I, I was told to kind of clear. And then I went to a trailer and I had, I had to help my buddy clear out a trailer with somebody who was in it. And whatnot, and 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 then I ended up doing something that I had never done before, and I went back to that call because they were just so heavy on my heart, and I, you know, I was like, all right, well, God, you know, if this is your will, then let it happen, make a way, you know. And so, of course, I go back to their house. Um, there was actually another officer who needed to have lunch and was sitting with the kids, and then that was the that was the making the way portion, if you will, quote unquote. And right. she was leaving. I sat. I replaced her. That's where I was able to talk with the kids, get to know them a little bit better. Um, talk to them literally or talk to them about forgiveness tell them share share with them about my background and whatnot so so that they know that hey this is not just some random guy speaking you know speaking some nonsense you know Um, but then when cps got there child protective services got there um you know i ended up sharing my information with them again before uh before uh we ended up taking them to to child haven and so uh yeah i shared my information i said hey look just keep in touch with me uh let me know like you've been updated I, I go home uh, that night, 
around like one or two a.m. in the morning, and um, I lay in bed and I start telling my wife. My wife wakes up, and you know she's like half asleep, and I start telling her about everything. And she's like, am I dreaming? <laughs> no, honey, you're not dreaming. Like, this is for real. <laughs> you know, like, this is really what's happening. This is what's going on. And, uh, you know, a few days later, um, I think that happened on a Saturday night, Friday or Saturday night. I believe it was a Saturday night. Monday comes around and their uh, CPS is, is hitting me up like, hey, are you still interested and whatnot? And I'm talking to my wife and I'm trying to, like, hey, like this, I, I wholeheartedly believe that God is calling us to do this. Like, let's do it, you know. And of course, she's reluctant. She's reluctant. You know, she's a young lady. You know, doesn't have any children, and to, to go from zero to five is, is a right. lot. You know, it's it's a lot to ask from your spouse. You know, because mm-hmm. the reality is, you don't really know anything about these kids. And what if these kids? You know, you ever see the movie uh, Esther or something like that, or Orphan? Orphan? Do you ever see that movie? Uh, it's a horror movie. I don't think so. No. All right. Well, there's a movie. There's like a, there's a horror movie about about a uh, a girl who was adopted by. A family, and then she ends up killing the family, right? So, so, like, you know, like you don't know, right? You don't, you don't know don't the really background know. at all. Yeah, yeah, and you know, cops, we're we're very, very scrutinizing individuals. You know, it's because you know we know that someone can look the par, but really, you run them, they could have a a, a, a rap sheet that goes five goes goes back five pages. You know, so we don't we don't really know. And so, right, you know, I was talking to my wife, and then of course things just started happening, man. Where you know they approved for us to to. CPS approved for us to take in the kids, and I guess they have their way of, of articulating things or whatever. But mind you, like they, they labeled us as next of kin, and we are fictive, fictive kin, fictive kin. And like I had never known these kids prior to prior to the incident, right? And so we're calling a couple of people from church, and we're like, "Hey, this is what's going on. Like, what do you guys think?" And we actually we got in touch with um, this couple who actually orphaned or uh, fostered. That's that, that, like their thing; they foster a lot. And they were like, they approved you? Like, there's no way that should have happened, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, this is a miracle. And I, I looked at my wife. I was like, see, look, listen. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, this is God telling us, like, we have to do this, you know? And so, um, you know, she's like, well, what, what about the cost or whatever? I was like, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. You know, like, so let's just right. trust God. Like, that's, if there's, like, I want my mother and I, we, you know, we, like I said, we, we didn't have really a great relationship growing up. But one thing I do love about my mom is that, Whenever the going, whenever whenever it got tough, her faith got going. You know what I mean? Like, right? She would always say, "Just, just have faith. Just have faith. Just have faith." And, and in this particular situation, in my mind, you know, this was a moment of of of, of faith, right? Like, okay, I'm going to have faith, God. If this is what you're calling us to do, we're going to have faith, and we're going to trust you in it. And then uh, right. we ended up taking the kids in, and you know, God is so faithful, man. Like, we we we're blessed with more than what we even needed, you know? And it was, it was truly amazing, man. Like where, where God led it, you know, like this is, it's cool. You know? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's how that, that's how, that's how that call played out. And, you know, yes, yeah. that's, that's where, where we are now. One of the most amazing parts of the story for me is the part where you tell CPS that you're interested in taking the five kids before you talk to your wife about it. I I just pictured in my mind yeah. how that conversation like, then went in bed at one or two in the morning, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like every other husband, like, hey, I'm going to do this and then dodge my wife. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Uh, that is funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean yeah. really, you know, you have, you have a couple miracles there. You have, you know, I, I 
I'm not making light of it, but you have the miracle of, of CPS doing what they can do to get these kids in your house. And you have the miracle of your wife agreeing to do it after you Same, already, yeah. like, oh, yeah. kind of started, started the, uh, started it down that road. But what are, what's the age range on the, uh, on the kids? Uh, it's now seven, nine, um, and the oldest is, or seven, nine, 14, 17, and the oldest is getting ready to turn 18. Okay. Yeah. All right. And, and how, like, how has it, you know, it's, it, you're, you guys are coming up on, uh, eight, eight, nine, 10 months. We're in October, 10 months. Um, how, how has the transition gone? Um, and how, how, yeah, how, how has it been for you guys? Yeah. So, uh, so real quick before I dive into that, actually, yeah. one thing I forgot to mention is, is, uh, is before we took the kids in, I asked God specifically, I gave I gave three conditions that needed to be met to know if it was him, right? Because I didn't want to act off of like off of my feelings, and so right, um, you know, the three things were number one um, that my wife agreed to it. Number two that there's spiritual security in this because their their mother uh, um, apparently practiced witchcraft, and then mm-hmm. of course number three was that God would financially take take care of us, and uh, they were all met. They were all met. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it it was truly amazing. But anyways, so as far as where we're at now, so um, the transition, I'd like to say when we first got the kids, the transition, um, there's that honeymoon phase, if you will. um, Right. You know, when when you have foster children, you know, they, 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 you know, they give you an appearance that they think that they, that you'd like to see. But really these kids, man, they, they were so authentic. Um just to who, who they were, period. You know what I mean? Like there was no giving off an, an impression or anything like that, like a, a false image. They were just authentic to, to who they were. And, um, you know, I'd like to say transitioning into our house was, um, was I don't know what it's like to, to deal with other kids. You know, like I, I've never right. fostered up prior to this. And so I'd like to say it went well. You know, um, my wife and I, we, we have a very specific way on how we run our house. You know, we'd like to, um, ideally, uh, keep it uh, biblically centered, right? Um, right. Where there's freedom of movement, right? But we also understand um, too that you know, uh, while we we take our, our direction from God, you know, um, now it, it hasn't always been perfect, of course, you know. But you know, that's something that we it's like sanctification, right? That's something that we strive for daily, right, weekly. Um, and so I'd like to say again, yeah, that it, that it went well. You know, we I would take them to to their counseling uh, sessions, at least the one to the kids who were willing to go, um, you know, the oldest, uh, the oldest definitely had her own fair share of tra- trauma before, before this particular incident and coming into our house. And so her just working right. through that and, and realizing, Hey, we're not here to hurt you rather to help you, you know? And, um, they, they all just grieved in their own way. You know, some of them mm-hmm. were more vocal than others. Um, and not vocal in the sense of like, lashing out although there was an incident where that did happen um but vocal in the sense of just actually talking about their their feelings you know um and then of course uh yeah so th- there was that and then you know as time went by um i ended up learning and finding out that that they actually did have family stateside um okay and yeah that that we ended up getting in touch with with their family stateside and currently where it stands is uh, the four, the four younger ones are with their aunt in New York and the oldest, uh, the, the aunt didn't want the oldest one. And she, uh, 
you know, she allowed her to stay with us. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you know, that, that's a whole, yeah, that's a whole off, off the record topic, um, conversation in and of itself. You know, I, I have my okay. own personal feelings and, and beliefs and, and, or my own personal feelings and, and perspectives on, on their aunt. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. So the oldest is, is still, still with you. Um, and you know, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you said she's 18. Um, she's so getting ready how, to turn 18 in a few weeks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and, and you know, what, what are the, like, what are you guys, like, what's the plan? I mean, you know, obviously she's 18. She can move out on her own if she wants, like, how, how are you guys, uh, dealing with that and, and talking to her about those things and addressing those issues? So, uh, so currently she's at, she's actually, uh, in dorms at UNLV. So she's okay. 18 years, she's, awesome. she's 17 years old. Yeah. But she, she graduated early from her high school, um, okay. which, you know, given everything that's happened to her in her life and then even, of course, you know, what's happened this year, man, she is a strong young lady and, uh, it's amazing. You know, yeah, it, it, I, I, I try to teach or, or try to, um, approach, approach these kids. Uh, like they were my own my own child, right? Um, and talk to them about uh, things that I perceive, you know, are really important, such as forgiveness and such as, um, you know, not becoming a victim of your circumstances and making the most of what you have, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, for her, she's she's doing that, and I think right now she's going through that that forgiveness and reconciliation phase in her, in, in her in her mind, you know, and just personally. Um, now. Uh, for for her being you know taking well, her being taken care of, um, so there was I'm sure you already know this there was quite a bit of money that was donated to to my wife and I um, for the kids, and yeah. uh, you know some of that was used definitely to to take care of the kids because the time that they were with us we weren't we weren't licensed foster parents so we weren't getting paid at all from the states so everything right um, everything that that was that was used to really take care of them was coming out of our pocket you know they're their dental appointments, um, all the food, like everything was, was coming out of our pockets. But the, you know, but um, my wife and I were fortunate enough to be able to set aside um, a good portion of the money. And hopefully the idea is to just give it to them or yeah, g- yeah give it to them as they turn 18 years old. So when she turns 18, she doesn't know this yet. Um, I told her, I told her that she has a, a big gift coming her way, <laughs> but okay. my wife and I, we're, yeah, we're gonna cut her uh, a check, and then if you know, I have a personal thing that you know I've been working overtime for um, that I want to get her, and you know, but you know, I, I told her as you know, for when she's on vacation, whether it's spring break, spring break, or or winter break, or whatever it is, she's more than welcome to always live with us. You know, okay. that's something that we don't mind whatsoever. Um, but as right. of right now, go she is currently at UNLV. The uh, the the younger ones. Uh, I'm anticipating actually. I'm anticipating um, the one of the other uh, older ones to actually end up coming back to to my wife and I. Um, okay. And yeah, and I don't know uh, if the other, the two younger ones. I think they're kind of. I think they're more comfortable with their their aunt than um, than the others are. Um, but uh, you know, either way, my wife and I are prepared to take them back. And you know, that's that's yeah. kind of where we're at. That's awesome. And and uh, I don't know if I can put this out there too, but you guys are now expecting as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, man. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. We are expecting it. I'm, ex- I'm excited. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's we, awesome. Yeah. Do you, do you, uh, 
Do you know if you're having a boy or a girl, or maybe you know and aren't yeah. telling people? Oh yeah, no, no, we're we're having a girl. She's getting ready to be due here in a couple of weeks too. <laughs> That's <laughs> unbelievable. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. You know. Um yeah, just a just a incredible story um and and you know a lot of times on on my Q the dip, dip segments I'm talking about I just try to pick out stories of of officers doing amazing things and it and it's it's a super inspiring story. I've read, you know, articles on it. Um you know, there's there's been quite a bit of press about it uh really yeah. um because it was just such an amazing story. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a moving and, and, uh, encouraging story, um, to, to hear and for you to tell, tell, uh, me about and, and everyone who listens about, um, you know, as we, as we close up here, um, you know, I did one thing that you, you talked about on, on the questionnaire I sent you before the episode was just your, your passion mm-hmm. about community policing and what that means to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the comments that you made about that that I thought was so good was that it's a two-way relationship between the police and community. Um, you obviously yep. have a, a big heart. Um, you're, you're a get-after-it type guy, but you have a big heart. Um, it, it seems like you've been involved in a lot of stuff and, and experienced a lot of things. How do you, yeah, can you just talk about you know, how you try to help people better understand the profession? And that relationship between the community and police, and 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 the best way that you have been able to uh, work on that, and and how you think law enforcement can do a better job with that. Yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, this isn't to like discredit anybody else who, you know, who's a cop or anything, but you know, I, I personally think, yeah, that that it's just like any other relationship; it's it's a two way thing. You know, how I how I personally exercise that on the job now is. I just, I'm, I'm authentic, man. I, or at least I try to be authentic with, with whoever it is I'm interacting with, you know, like I, I know I haven't forgotten where I came from. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember that I was only a few decisions away from, from being a product of my environment. And, you know, I don't know, man, like I just got to be authentic with, with whomever it is that I'm coming across, you know, and realizing too, that this person is just as human as I am. And I'm just right. as human as they are. And rather than, than tiptoeing or trying to make someone feel good, right? Cause I, I'm not a, I'm not about that. You know, I don't, I, don't, I think feelings can definitely be, be misleading and, and really destructive if, if that's all someone is going to live their life by is their feelings. Rather, you know, right. I just, again, try to take an authentic approach and, 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 uh, really try to exercise some empathy. I think this job is, is very, can be very corrosive if you're not careful to, to, to uh watch yourself um corrosive especially in the sense of of forgetting that that humanity within yourself you know what i mean like if you if all you're seeing all day long are people with with 10 page rap sheets and gangbangers shooting innocent people and then innocent people making bad decisions right or or uh, not innocent people but just, just i guess ordinary citizens making bad decisions or whatever uh it, it, all you're seeing is just atrocities it can be very corrosive and, and uh, I, I can only speak for myself. For me, there was a point where I became very apathetic and all I cared about was making the next arrest where now, you know, I still make my arrests, you know, and so forth. But I also understand too, that again, uh, I'm just as human as, as this person that I am arresting, you know what I mean? Like, and, and to exercise that on a practical, practical sense, I, I suppose, you know, 
departments now that are reaching out to the community, I think it's a good thing, right? It's it's a department. It's a it, it's a department wide thing that they're trying to do a, a bigger scale thing. But I honestly think that it boils down to the individual officer. And I, I know that there, there are probably a lot of officers now who probably agree with this. If, you know, if they're listening to your podcast, that's fine. Um, but it, it boils down to the individual. You know, how you treat somebody is really goes a long way. Granted, there are some very just naturally disrespectful people. I'll just be straight right. up. Like there are people who just genuinely just doesn't like us and will be disrespectful all day long. But the way I was raised, man, and, 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 you know, for the very few things that my mother taught me is you give respect to get respect. You know what I mean? And if, 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 if for every person, for like every 10 people that I've uh, had that approach with, there's only been like one or two who actually just been genuinely disrespectful. <laughs> like right. That's just who they are as a person. Like they have no bearing. They have no, no self-discipline. They like, you know, they're, they're just, they're who they are. Right. But at the end of the day, they're right. still human too. You know what I mean? And just that 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 interaction that genuine relationship or that interaction that that um genuine approach uh, really can help with that that uh that building of of the relationship but again that that goes to both ways right like if someone is being disrespectful to me on on patrol i'm not going to sit there and just stand there and let, unless i'm on perimeter i'm not going to stand there and let them continue to disrespect me you know i'll just walk away from them and say you handle you know handle it yourself or whatever you know what i mean if if i'm afforded that opportunity right. to do that Right. But um, for the most part, yeah, again, it, it is a two way relationship. That is a two way thing. Yeah, that's literally anything else you do in life. If, if there's a relationship to be had, that it comes from both parties there, you know, that takes two to tango. You know, I think I, yeah. I think I actually said that in my response to, to your question. Yeah. It does take two to tango, you know, and if if there's something that could be fixed, let's fix it. If, if there's not, then OK, how, how can we make what's not? Uh, that that doesn't need fixing. How can we make it even better? You know, and that's yeah. just kind of where I'm at. But yeah, you know, again, it sure. all it all boils down to the individual. Yeah, I th- I think that's so. I think that's so good. I mean, I I see all these departments doing all these like little like, um, you know, I I, I get a little negative about all these like little pet projects and and kind of getting distracted yeah. in my opinion. But ultimately, yeah. it comes yeah. down to you know, and and my experience on my department towards the end of my career is there was so much pressure, you know, for these officers, go to this event, go to this event, go to this event, go to this yeah, event. Yeah. And it's I always felt like, yeah, yeah I, it, it's not authentic. And generally what it means is that you're rubbing shoulders with people who already like the police um, yes. and, and aren't yes. even necessarily from the areas in the community where you work. And uh, so right. I always, I always felt that the the best way you can conduct community policing is literally via officer on the street, getting out of their car and walking mm-hmm. um, in those high areas, yeah. knowing, yep. knowing who their store owners are, doing those bank checks, doing those business checks, like being, yep. you know, being out there and being like, not just in a car with your windows up, but actually being yep. out there and actually talking to people. Um, so I think what you said is so, so important. Nick, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You're, you, you have an incredible like testimony um, about what God's done in your life. You, you have an incredible story. Um, you know, you, it, it's challenging for me to hear you talk and, and the way you approach the job and, the, and, and how you try to treat people. It's challenging for me um, just, just as you know, a regular dude and a, and a cop myself. Um, and what I like to do it at the end of all these episodes is just give my guests the final word. Uh, you can say or speak about uh, whatever's on your heart. 
um, to close out the episode. So, uh, Officer Nick Quintana, final word. Yeah, you know, um, something that's really close to my heart is uh, is seeking help. Uh, if you're if you're uh, specifically a law enforcement officer, um, sure, you know, there's there's definitely the first responder community, but specifically a law enforcement officer, if you need to get help, get help. If 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 your spouse is telling you that you've changed or the closest person to you has said that you have changed, then you more than likely have changed. And it's probably not for the better. Um, if you find yourself, you know, drinking more than you typically have done in the past, uh, or if you're shutting down at home, you're becoming a, a couch potato, if you will. If you find yourself disinterested in life or you become very apathetic, you know, my, my response to you is, Remember who you were before you became a cop. Remember just just that person. And if this is your identity, if this is all who you are, try to try to get away from that and and just you know become who you were if you can in your own way uh, prior to becoming a cop. You know, it's if you are a cop and you're, and you're listening to this and you need help, go get it. You know, if 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 you don't want to do that, that's fine. At least find a, a better way to cope. You know, I, like I said before, you know, I, I write poetry or I'll listen to music, you know, or sometimes I'll even work out or I'll go hiking. Do something that is not law enforcement related to to help you cope. And if you have friends that are all they are are cops, find friends that are not cops. You know, like, you know, do something to help yourself because at the end of the day, this is temporary. And at the end of your career, you're either going to be surrounded by the people you know, that you love and that love you, or you're going to be alone um, because, you know, this is all that you've, you've made your life to be. And, and that's not what I want for you. If you're a Christian and you're a cop, remember the joy of your salvation and remember, you know, just how much God loves you. And every day, you know, every day, you know, this, just remember that, you know, that God loves you and uh, to lean on him daily, seriously. Um, you know, this is something that, that's really close to my heart. And, uh, you know, I genuinely hope if you ever need to, to reach out to somebody, you can always reach out to me. I, I, I don't know who you are, but you can always reach out to me. Um, you know, I'm sure uh, if, if Anthony here wants to share it, then he can share, you know, my my uh, Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever. I don't mind that. But you know, I'm always here if you need someone to just shut their mouth and listen. But please do uh, help yourself. Seriously. And that's kind of where I'll leave it. All right. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Anthony. I appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Before I get into the rest of the show, I wanted to let you know that I would love if you became a patron of the podcast, supporting the mission of this podcast for as little as $5 per month. Patrons are eligible for prize drawings and get instant access to past and future patron-only episodes. Right now, I believe there are six or seven patron-only episodes that would be available to you right now if you signed up to be a patron. Go to www.diakonasacc.com and hit the support tab to learn more about becoming a patron and other ways you can support this podcast. This episode's Cue the Dip standout is Las Vegas police officer Tierney Tamboro. This officer has been on my radar as a Cue the Dip standout for several weeks, and it fits in perfectly with this episode today. 
as I talk to Officer Nick Quintana from North Las Vegas PD. Officer Tierney Tamburo works for Las Vegas uh, Police Department. She's been an officer since 2020, and on September 10th in the early morning around 1 a.m., she and her partner were patrolling an area known for violent crime. They make a vehicle stop in this area for a simple traffic infraction. There's three males inside of this vehicle. All of them are directed out of the vehicle. Once out of the vehicle, the front passenger attempted to flee on foot and Officer Tamboro begins to pursue the suspect. During the foot pursuit, the suspect turned and fired one round at Officer Tamboro. Uh, at, at that time, she was shot in the pelvis and immediately fell to the ground. However, from the ground, she was able to fire four rounds, striking and ultimately killing the suspect and stopping that threat. Officer Tamboro currently is out of the hospital and recovering at home. Uh, the driver in this case was arrested for DUI. The other occupant uh, was released after being questioned. Here's the audio from Officer Tamboro's body cam during the incident. It starts with Officer Tamboro directing the occupants out of the vehicle, and then you'll hear the foot pursuit, the shots, and Officer Tamboro working through the injury, being assisted by another officer, and directing units on the radio. Go back right here. And then you guys go, sir. Anyone got weapons or anything I need to know about, okay? All right, to the front, to the front, to the front. Ooh. Hey! 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 No! No! Ah! Ah! Shots fired! Shots fired! Shots Where you at? Where you hit? I need a Okay, I got you. Yeah. Right on the leg, how far up? Yeah. Ah. My radio fell. My radio fell. Give me your radio. I got you, I got you, don't worry. Hi. 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 Oh. I'm going to be off the Universe City Center. And Flamingo, the University Gardens. I'm going to be on the north side right when you enter. I just can't watch and listen to a video like this and not provide some thoughts on it. It's the police trainer in me. It's never left. And so a couple things I'd like to point out. Officer Tamburo did an excellent job in handling the stress of being shot, working through it, and stopping the threat. I think listening to the body cam and watching it, if you have a chance, are good ways to see what officers need to consider on every stop and how some of these stops can go wrong. I'll include a link to the video in my episode notes. Officers must critique videos like this to get better at doing their job. On every single incident or stop, an officer should be taking very purposeful steps to maintain tactical advantage and observe any red flags that mean fight or flight. While the vast amount of traffic stops, person stops, and any other incident happen without any force being used, it's those times when it is needed that can be the difference between injury or even death. We don't have the luxury of training for the majority. We have to train and mentally prepare for the small percentage of stops and incidents that can keep us from not going home the way we came to work. So keeping that in mind, I'd like to suggest a couple things for those out there who are actually in law enforcement and do the job. Uh, for an incident like this, consider matching the amount of suspects with the same amount or even more officers. Think critically 
about how you will control suspects you direct out of a car, house, etc. Anytime you're directing suspects, think critically about how you're going to direct their movement and maintain control. Directing unknown threats to move at will or together at the same time uh, and not at one, at one at a time can become very, very difficult to control. Secondly, don't just practice shooting from your feet. Practice shooting in different positions on the ground. Mentally prepare for what you will do when you're shot or injured and still need to fight. That's the third point. Mentally prepare for what you will do when you're shot or injured and still need to fight. The reason I say when is because in your mind, if it's an if, if I get shot, I'm going to do this. Your mind is already behind the eight ball. Train for the when, when it happens, not if it happens. Bottom line is Officer Tamburo did an excellent job and fully deserves this episode's accolades for kicking up the dust in pursuit. I want to close out the episode with some additional thoughts on the conversation about sin and forgiveness that Nick and I touched on throughout our conversation. I so appreciate Nick coming on and being open about his struggles and God's work in his life. One of the most challenging things for me as a police officer is having a mindset like Nick when it comes to people whose sin is great and who daily engage in sinfully wicked behavior. My thoughts toward them at times, I have to admit, are evil. And sometimes I wish them harm. Sometimes I even want to do them harm. And at times I have no love for them and get annoyed that my Heavenly Father sent His Son to die for, their, for the sins of all, including them. I'm just being honest. Romans 5, 6, though, says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you, that's me, that's everyone. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That includes all of us. Not some of us, all of us. It's great to realize that while I was still an enemy of God, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. But did he really die for that absolute person doing evil over there? Say, for instance, Jeffrey Dahmer, which I mentioned in my conversation with Nick. His sins are too great. He deserves to rot in hell. And you would be right. Jeffrey Dahmer does deserve to rot in hell. But so do you, and so do I. We know what God says about all of our sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and does not ever sin. In Romans 3.23, we, we see and we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, this includes all of us, you, me, and Jeffrey Dahmer. In 1 John 1, 7-9, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, that statement includes you, me, and people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Romans 3, 10 to 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 1 John 3, 4 to 6, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. James 1, 14-15 But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Colossians 3, 5-6 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so we, when we see the sin of someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, we say he deserves to rot in hell. And again, he does. But so do you and I. For the wrath of God is coming to confront our own sin. And our sin brings forth death. All have sinned. No one, not even one, is righteous. And so we point to the sin of another. It's easy to do that and say, how could God save that person? One finger pointed at another and the rest pointed back at us for how could God save you and me? For sure, some sins carry graver consequences and deeper wounds, but all sin leads to death. That's what those verses said. That's what James 1, 14 to 15 says. It brings forth death. I speak about sin a lot on these episodes because a light view of sin, a softening of sin, empties the gospel of its power. Saying that which God abhors is not really that bad cheapens what he's done for us through his son Jesus. We live in a culture that does this continually. It should not surprise us, but we should be ever aware of it. For example, our culture's view on murdering babies is just that. We don't even refer to it as murder, but abortion. It's softer. Even many who proclaim they are pro-life are quick to become pro-murder if the baby was conceived due to rape or incest. In that case, we soften the sin of murder and make it acceptable. In the case of a woman's life being in danger, again, some who are pro-life quickly pronounce themselves as God, agreeing that the murder of the baby to save the woman is just and right. The softening a murder into a palatable option. Sin softened, grace cheapened, gospel gutted, Jesus' death lessened. So if sin is not viewed correctly, the gospel is not understood fully. I recently heard a pastor say that God whispers about some sins. This is a terrible take. God does not whisper about sin. His wrath boils about our sin. The word sin is in the Bible over 400 times. Why? Because sin is what Jesus died for. Jesus became our sin. Sin, all sin, so black, so evil, so disgusting to our God that his wrath boils against us. And yet his mercy and love so great that for our sake he made Jesus to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, God does not whisper about sin. He does not whisper about any sin. One does not whisper about something that would cause him to crush his own son. One does not whisper about something that would cause him to sacrifice his only son on behalf of you and me. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In Isaiah 53, 4-10, it says, However, 
It was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due? And his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And this brings us full circle to a sinner like Jeffrey Dahmer. He's trending right now due to a Netflix special. But out of that trending has come an interview he did many years ago where he pronounces God as the creator of all things and confesses that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior. Now, only God knows Dahmer's heart and the genuineness of that profession of faith. But let's take it at face value. And in light of the Bible and the passages that I just read, that means that Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven at this very moment. And for me, thinking about that shines a bright light on the softening of sin in my own life. In my humanness, I want to say Dahmer's sin was too great. He does not deserve to be in the presence of God. He deserves to be in the deepest pit of hell in agony for eternity. He is beyond hope to be saved. He cannot be saved. But the moment I'm tempted to think or believe that is the moment I empty the gospel of its power and its hope because salvation then becomes incumbent on people and their good works and their righteousness. Christian, brother, sister in Christ, if we believe that someone like Dahmer cannot be saved, we deny the very word of God. For my sin, just like Dahmer's sin, leads to death. It is a death sentence. And yet if we confess and believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and then he died and rose again, we are without guilt. For by grace, through faith in Jesus, I am righteous before God, the holy creator of heaven and earth. May our prayer and attitude be that of Paul, where in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 17, he says, even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which was found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
let us kick up the dust in pursuit of that. Yeah.